0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Lab Chat. I'm hoping everyone had a great Thanksgiving uh, and you're filled up on that turkey. Hopefully, we don't see too many uh, campy and salmonella infections in the lab, but it is that season. (laughs) Anyways, uh, I thought this episode I would do a quick update on things. I received an email from a family member uh, from someone called Caitlin I think it's Jitlina, and she calls herself the uh, local epidemiologist. And it was kind of a rundown on all of this uh, Omicron COVID variant talk, Um, and she was kind of sounding the alarm. So I wanted to cover that, but also just what all this means for uh, various testing and that we do in our labs. And so I kind of brushed off the package inserts. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of go through some of these and and talk about it. So in this email, uh, she was pointing out that this new variant has 32 mutations on the spike protein itself, whereas uh, Delta only had nine. And so of course, whenever we're talking about spike protein uh, mutations, we get worried because that's what our vaccine is going after, right? And so the immediate question is, how many mutations does it take in order for a conformational change to occur to the spike protein uh, that would leave us high and dry with our immunity from the vaccine. Um, she, she did note after the uh, genetic analysis that only two mutations actually occurred uh, that were in the receptor binding domain or the region that actually binds the ACE2 receptor. Um, so those are of the most concern because uh, if it, changes its ability to bind uh, ACE2, that is a significant area that the vaccine is targeting. And the other thing to mention about that is if it changes too much and it can't recognize ACE2, uh, that may have a severe fitness uh, issue for the virus's ability to actually bind cells. So it's actually not you know, very advantageous for the virus to go and look for a whole new receptor to bite onto. And it may not even be that possible. I hope fingers crossed. Um, But the idea that I have in my mind and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if the virus still can bind ACE2, it means that there will be some fraction of antibody that we produce that can still recognize that spike protein. Um, So she points out that there was a couple of reports in Hong Kong that showed two uh, vaccinated individuals testing positive for this particular variant. Uh, Again, you know, not something uncommon. We've seen people test positive. More what we're worried about is the severity of their illness. Right. Uh, And then she goes on. And this is where, man, I just couldn't believe someone with this amount of education could say something like this. But You know, she's not a lab scientist. She says during their PCR tests, the viral loads were very high uh, considering they were negative previously and they had CT values of 18 or 19. So this tells us that this variant is highly contagious. Now that is just completely wrong. Uh, If you know about PCR, you know that, you know, cycle threshold values, uh, you know, vary. Uh, based on your your standard curve, um, comparing it is is not a good. It's not a good indication, basically, of uh, viral load dependent on your assay, or let alone the the contagiousness of the virus. In order to make those kind of determinations, you know, you need to actually do uh, studies of infectivity. So, in no way should PCR tests be used to measure contagiousness. Uh, and you shouldn't really be comparing CT values as a measure of, uh, you know, how much virus there is necessarily because we don't even know if this is live virus, right? We're just detecting viral RNA. Um, so in order to kind of look at our assays here, I just figured we'd do a quick COVID anatomy. And, and this is not unique to COVID. I mean, a lot of viruses share this kind of similar anatomy, but it'll help us define some of these terms. So the nucleocapsid protein is is the protein that the virus uses uh, to surround the RNA. So it actually binds the RNA and forms a a protein coat around it, right. And then the envelope protein uh, is kind of responsible for structure, you know, creating an additional layer a structure around that nucleocapsid. So it's the outer layer, uh, the envelope protein forms and then the spike protein the one that we're targeting with vaccines that's like the projectile that comes out of the envelope it's anchored in the envelope and it helps the virus to actually target its host cell and latch onto it um so let's run down some of the the common uh assays that at least i've encountered and and i didn't really you know invoke some of the lab developed testing but they're they're all kind of going along these same uh thought lines. And so let's start with Cepheid. So Cepheid is a reverse transcriptase, uh, you know, QPCR assay. Um, and when you read through the package insert, they're they're kind of vague about what primers they're using, but what it boils down to is you're detecting into and e-gene. Right. And N2 is just the nucleocapsid uh gene. And then E is the envelope protein uh, gene. And so um basically, you know, these two things were selected on purpose, right? They were selected because these are proteins that if they change too much and genes, that you know the virus can't adequately form a viral particle. Um, so they're highly conserved now you know, one of the things we might know is that when we go after something that's that's relatively nonspecific like this, there is kind of a, a risk of losing some specificity. So, you know, false positivity with other, uh, you know, coronaviruses is, is, is possible, but there's between these two, pro, you know, genes, uh, we get significant amount of uh, information that is specific to uh this particular uh coronavirus and then uh you know the id now assay which is the little point of care um you know 10 minute uh easy peasy dip the swab and go uh that is actually an it's what's called a nicking enzyme isothermal reaction which is a really cool abbreviation near and uh it that's what allows it to be so quick uh, but it's interesting that this one actually goes after the RNA dependent RNA polymerase gene. So basically, you know, coronavirus has a gene that codes for a polymerase that when it gets into the cell, uh, it uses to actually replicate viral copies of RNA. So it just produces a bunch of these things uh, from this RNA polymerase. It didn't appear that there's any other targets, but again, this is a pretty conserved thing uh if there's too much change in the polymerase you can't make additional mrna right uh the biofire and and it's a really cool thing if you go on their website they have a a great video that i remember watching long ago and just watched it again kind of runs you through the the ingenuity of all of that like containing just an entire pipeline of molecular uh in a in a plastic bag, essentially, and, and one that you can keep at room temperature. It's amazing. Um, but basically it, it was kind of hard to determine in this one what the actual target was. Uh, they, I, I think they kind of like to keep their primers somewhat. I'm sure I could find out if I asked them, but I would think again, the biofire is probably along these same lines. Um, and, and one of the ways that, you know this is in the package insert. It says that the uh, primers for the BioFire COVID 2 uh, assay share substantial sequence homolo- homology with uh, bat coronavirus, and that's RaTG13. And it also mentions that uh, it may cross-react with some pangolin coronaviruses and two other bat coronaviruses. And those are the two culprits, you know, that that scientists were pointing to in the emergence of this. Uh, this pandemic, so no surprise there, but, uh, you know, they feel fairly certain that uh, because these cr- particular coronaviruses don't infect humans uh, as of yet, that we're not just carrying these things around. So the risk for false positivity is fairly low. And, uh, you know, after, after uh, PCR-2 in the BioFire uh, assay, it goes on to this little, well, it's already on the chip, you know, and it performs PCR-2. But then there's a fluorescent signal that the BioFire actually uses and each well is specific for a certain pathogen. And then it also uses melt curve data uh, to determine that that is in fact a, a true positive for that sequence. Um, very awesome uh, technology there. Um, and it, and then, you know, it's worth pointing out that the WHO's guidelines on this is actually uh, screening, for e-gene followed by a confirmatory test using the RNA-dependent RNA RNA polymerase uh, to rule out cross-reaction with other endemic coronaviruses. And then they also point out that this is actually because we anticipate genetic drift in uh, SARS-CoV-2. So we pick sites that we don't expect uh, to vary a ton. So that our assays still work in the event of variants, and so all this was by plan, right? And then, if we talk about, um, you know, our our antigen testing, uh, the Binax Now is probably the most popular. Uh, it detects nucleocapsid protein, so again, we don't have to worry about this new variant not being detected on the antigen cards. Um, and then uh, the last one is igg abbott architect and you know i've been running this for quite a while now and i guess i never realized but uh it it is only detecting igg antibodies uh to the nucleocapsid protein as well um so that means you know i've heard some people tell me like yeah i was vaccinated but then i took an antibody test and it was negative and i thought that is really weird but this totally makes sense if you're vaccinated, you have not been exposed to the nucleocapsid protein, so you would test negative on this assay. Um, so just an awesome, uh, you know, a relief really to know that I, you know, this is not going to affect our assays all that much. But you know, this is something that we um, have to anticipate as labs is that there there may be uh, times where you know, the antigenic drift is so much or the genes, uh, change so much that, you know, the primers are not, uh, appropriate anymore. Luckily that isn't the case now. Um, and I, I think I, you know, while we have cause for concern with this one, I think that, you know, we definitely need these neutralization assays, uh, and the data from them. To determine whether or not our vaccines are still effective and what level of effectiveness uh, they will have, I think that, you know, from what I know, I, I think it looks pretty good that they, they would work. Um, but, you know, it's better to use caution always. And that is the nature of a pandemic. And so I am wishing you all happy holidays. I was so excited to see everyone at our recent collaboratory event. That was just such a cool thing to get together with uh, PAMET and ASCLS, and just some amazing speakers there. Um, we do have some of those recordings available. Um, hoping eventually to roll them out to members in some format so that, you know, uh, we can have kind of a, a CE program that maybe if you can't make it to our, our conference, uh, maybe you can catch them afterwards. And then we are planning uh, upcoming conventions sometime in March uh, for the Fresno chapter and as well as uh, our Pasadena conference, which we really hope will be live fingers crossed uh, so we can see everybody again, get together, share some stories and uh, reminisce. So anyways, have a good night. Hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Let me know if you have any questions or comments or, or things that, Maybe you could clarify a bit uh, with your knowledge on these things. But anyways, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back again sometime soon. Okay, have a good one. Bye.